If you haven't done so yet, let's have our Bibles open to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, this passage of Scripture can be found on page 960. If you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to take the Scripture copy, the Black Pew Bibles, home as our gift to you and continue reading and meditating on God's Word Before I read our passage of scripture, I'd like to catch a few of you up to speed. On uh, Sunday mornings, on a normal week like today, we have a meeting that happens downstairs. And all of you are welcome every week. And we gather roughly 10-15. We have coffee and an assortment of treats. Think continental breakfast style. Don't have too big of hopes or expectations, but you get the idea. We have some food, some coffee, tables around a fellowship hall, and then we share prayer requests, updates, announcements, things that are going on in the life of our church, things that we'd like to inform you of. And so if you've not been able to, for whatever reason, to make it, maybe you don't even know that it existed, well, there's your announcement. Please come each week if you can. Over the last three weeks, we've had two Young people, two couples of young people, get up and announce that they are engaged to be married. First, David and Hannah, congratulations, engaged to be married. And this morning, Matt and Emily shared that they are engaged to be married. And our applause shows just how excited we are. That was sarcasm. In pastoral ministry, I have noticed, and I want you to notice, as just a basic, obvious fact of engaged couples. I ask them, hey, what are some things we can be praying for? And without fail, almost every single time, it is, please pray for the stress of wedding preparations. Could you imagine having a bride get up in front of a room of people or in a small group setting, announce that they're engaged, everybody clap, cheer, celebrate with them. Oh, let me see your ring. Let me give you a hug. And they say, oh, how, how can I be praying for you? How are you doing? I'm chill. I'm cool. Going to just sit back and relax for the next six months until the wedding. Could you imagine somebody that's engaged with a wedding date pending and they don't spend any time prepping for the wedding day. No reservations made, no invitations sent out, no appointments for the hair to get done. Do you get the picture? This is absurd. It's insane. It's never happened in my life, and my guess is it'll never happen in yours. The fact of the engagement And the wedding date that is scheduled dictates a kind of thinking, living, feeling, and behaving. This will be a helpful image and principle for our scripture passage. For the Bible says that because of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into human flesh, dying on a cross for sinners, rising from the dead, and sending the Holy Spirit. This, what we call the gospel of Jesus, is God himself getting on a knee and saying, will you marry me? 
Will you accept the offer of free salvation that I have purchased? Yes or no? When you say yes, you are now that bride. And so there's a wedding day coming. The fact of saying yes and the fact of the wedding day should dictate behavior, thoughts, feelings. It should help you orient yourself of, I've got some work to do, but it's a, a joy-filled work. It's a privilege. It's something that you're excited for, and at times it can be stressful. That is what I believe our passage is painting for us for the Christian life. So, before we read it, let me give you the simple, short, little, one-sentence summary, what I call the big idea, the main point. Because God's son is coming, God's children are getting ready. Because God's son is coming, God's children are getting ready. That's what we'll find as we read, starting in verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. Follow along as I read. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that'll end our reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. And my prayer for us is that we would believe that God's son is coming and we would therefore get ready as his children. Amen? God's son is coming. It's a fact. It's reality. It is the most important thing I think I could state from the scriptures in the passage we have in front of us. He's coming. So therefore, we should live as if that reality is true. So here's the way I'd like to unpack this passage of scripture. We're going to walk through it two times. The first is to see the two illustrations that are embedded in the text about getting ready. There's two of them, one at the beginning and one at the end. That'll be part one of our sermon. The two illustrations of getting ready. Then I'd like to walk through the text slowly, verse by verse, and give you the four instructions for how we are to get ready based on this passage of scripture. Two illustrations, four instructions. I started the sermon with an illustration about engagement, proposal, and then wedding day. That's not the illustration used here, but you'll see the similarities, I think, right off the bat. So first, part one, two illustrations, starting in verse 28. Here's the passage again. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his parousia. Parousia is the Greek word, at his coming. The word parousia is, I think, an illustration. It's a loaded word. It's not just about somebody coming. 
One very authoritative Bible commentator has his own translation of the whole New Testament, and he, he writes it this way. Children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have boldness and not be put to shame before him at his royal appearing. Royal appearing. Now, why does this Bible translator take coming and then add the word royal? Because that's what I'm talking about as it relates to an embedded illustration. It's a common word used for the coming of a king. It's not just any kind of coming. It's a royal, regal, important, distinguished guest of honor. So you're supposed to imagine whether this is your individual home or your collective city or town, that there's been an announcement that a king is about to arrive at such and such time or date. Perhaps you don't know the exact date, but you have a general vague idea. Let's say, for the sake of illustration, you know that it's going to come sometime in this year, but you don't know exactly when. If you knew that you were going to have a prestigious guest arrive at your home, but again, we don't know the exact time or hour, how might you be preparing? How would you let your house, in terms of tidying up, get out of control? The fact of the date of his arrival would require one to regularly, faithfully, daily clean up, put things away, get ready, because it could be tomorrow. It could be two weeks from now. And so there's a faithful, constant making sure that the fridge is full and the groceries are in the right order. If you had a king, a president, a celebrity show up and cleaning had not been done for weeks, months, you didn't put things away. The table isn't set. Food has not been cooked. It hasn't even been purchased. The beverages are cold, not warm. You're sitting in your pajamas Flipping through the Netflix, scrolling through your social media channel. Nothing is ready. What would you experience in that moment? Our passage says it quite plainly. Shame. Embarrassment. There is a way of living on the basis of the royal appearing. It would bring shame to your family or your home if this sort of occasion occurred. This is actually why I started thinking about John 2 and the royal wedding feast and the family that didn't make enough provisions and the wine ran out and Jesus saved them from what would be permanent social embarrassment for the rest of that family's history, more than likely. This is not just a, a minor social faux pas. This is horrible for their reputation and honor in an honor-shame culture. So notice the, the weight around this. And don't just think about individuals. Think about this collectively, like a king saying he's going to arrive at the city. If you're the mayor of that city, if, if you're helping as a host to bring in the big guest, it's Super Bowl Sunday of all Sundays. Imagine Las Vegas being like, oh, wait, that's today? Oops, we forgot. We, did, we weren't prepared. They've been preparing for this for probably years or, or more. The red carpet should be rolled out. The streets should be blocked off. The citizens would have had announcements told ahead of time so that when the guest comes, everybody is ready to welcome them with all of the appropriate fanfare for their dignity. This is what John is telling us in verse 28. A kind of eager readiness. 
You're not forgetting about it. It's on the forefront of your mind. It's intentional. It's deliberate. You behave because you know what's coming. That's verse 28, and that's picture illustration number one. Now let's drop to the last part of our passage, verses two and three, and we'll get illustration number two. And again, this may not on the surface seem obvious to you, but when we dive deeper into the words John chooses, it paints a huge picture of an illustration for preparation of getting ready. Look again at verses two and three of chapter three. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Two key words that provide an entire story from the Bible. First, seeing. Second, purifying. Now, for those of you that aren't as familiar with the Bible, let me just make sure you know from the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. God is really, really good. But just because something is good doesn't mean it's safe. In this case, God, like the blazing power of the sun in the middle of our solar system, is emanating righteous goodness from his essence. And when we sin, just like in the Garden of Eden, we experience shame, like the hot sun burning. It's not just giving life and giving us warmth. It's hurting us. We're going to run and cower from it. The idea of seeing God when you're a sinner is the first word that I'm pointing on here. From the moment of the Garden of Eden, as soon as sin entered in the world, as soon as humans fell in rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, from that point on, every single time without fail. Sinful humans do not waltz into the blazing glory of God's presence. Either they will drop down dead instantly or fire will fall from heaven or you name the picture that appears from Exodus chapter 32 and 33 when Moses is, okay God, You've given me a couple yeses to my prayers. I'm feeling like I'm on a roll. Now, let me see your glory. And what does the Lord say? Moses, wake up, buddy. Do you know what you're asking? No, you cannot see me in my full glory. Here's what I'll do. I'll metaphorically, I'll show you some of me, my back. You you can't see my face and live. These are the sort of stories from Genesis 3 in the garden to Moses in the cleft of the rock to Nadab and Abihu getting struck down with fire when they brought in strange fire to the Ark of the Covenant being moved through the wilderness and then Uzzah trying to reach out and touch it with his hand and then thinking his hand was holier than the ground that the Ark would have fallen on to the pagan gods of Dagon that fall before and crash before the mighty holy presence of God. On and on we could go from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, seeing the blazing beauty of God's glory and seeing the angels of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he immediately says, woe is me. I'm a dead man. I'm going to die right now. There is not a single instance in scripture where a sinful human can see or experience or get right up to the close very presence of God without first getting scrubbed 
One Bible translator translated this word purifier, scrubbed, cleansed. It's not a common word. If you wanted to make up a word based on what this word means, it's holyfied, to make one sanctified or holy, to get washed up because that's the image that's being done here. The holy presence of God is good, but oh, it's dangerous for sinners. So in order to get into the closeness of God's presence, one needs to be ritually clean, purified. You can't be a high priest and just waltz right into the holy of holies just all on your own. You need God's prescription for being washed and cleansed and sanctified. In case some of you think, that's just Old Testament stuff, or that's weird. It's not that weird. It's actually very normal. If you had a surgery this week, would you feel okay of the surgeons and nurses eating their food during the surgery? Or is the operating room basically another analogy or metaphor of the kind of set-apart holiness of the sanctity of we're trying to protect someone's life here. And if we just walk into that room and you didn't wash your hands and you didn't scrub up and you didn't get your gowns on, we're talking about life and death, sickness or diseases and infections at best or death at worst. In a much more profound way, God's presence demands purity, cleansing, no contamination whatsoever. We need to be holified scrubbed up. And that's the illustration. That's the picture that's coming here. So now read the text again with all that I've just said in mind. Beloved, starting in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3, we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Key in on that phrase, when he appears, when he, Jesus Christ, the resurrected and ascended Lord, comes back. He's already proposed. He's already made us children of God. The gospel has already accomplished so much. There's so much joy, and we'll get to that. But for now, notice the Son of God is coming, and because of that, God's children, they're being purified now by hope, by the hope of his coming. We shall be like him when we see him fully, in the full radiance of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it's not just because he has a physical body. It's not just because you see Jesus. How many people saw the incarnation and they weren't purified by it? Notice that this is about seeing truly. Do you see it or do you see it? Do you know or do you know? That's the concept that's being talked about here. Do you personally know President Joe Biden? Do you personally know any of the stars that are going to be on the Super Bowl game later today? But you probably have heard their names before. You've probably heard something about Joe Biden or Patrick Mahomes. But do you know them? You could see and then you could see. He's talking about that second sense of seeing, a kind of spiritual sense where I see with my eyes the fullness of what God's done in Jesus Christ and I see all that it really means. I'm seeing God. Some people saw man, but children of God saw God-man. 
saw the fullness of God in bodily form. And that's why we have hope. He did come. He did die. He did rise again from the dead. And they saw, and they really saw, that that death accomplished something. Do you all understand the difference between these two? True seeing. You could see the cross. You could have been a Roman soldier, a Jewish skeptic. You could have saw Jesus die in human history. That's not the kind of seeing we're talking about. Jesus Christ died on a cross. That does not save. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Do you see that? When you see him on the cross dying for your sins, then you're starting to see. And now we already are children of God that are starting to gain spiritual sight, but the Bible says dimly. Not fully, not clearly, but there's a day coming when we will see fully. And when we see fully, clearly, high definition, full seeing, we'll be like him. So there's your two pictures, and that's the reason why I said because God's son is coming, God's children are therefore getting ready for the royal appearance of the king who's conquered Satan's sin and death, or for the high priest of heaven who's ascended, seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling in heaven on our behalf. Do you see him there? Behold. How many times have we been singing that all this morning? Behold, come, behold, see. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and I, I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Four instructions. Practically then, on the basis of these two very potent pictures of what God has done for us in Christ, already accomplishing for us full salvation of our sins being paid for, but not full sanctification yet. What we will one day be has not yet appeared yet. But we are already now children of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's think in whatever image or illustration you like, you're in between. The proposal, and if you said yes, yes, Jesus. Yes to the cross. Yes to confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man. If that's you today, and I hope it's all of you, then you should believe he's coming again. So then, how do we live in between? Four things that our text says. First, Verse 28 says, abide. It's the first command in our text. So therefore, it's instruction number one, abide in him. But how? How do we abide in him? And the answer should come from what proceeds. Start back in verse 24. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Already we're getting a clue. The kind of abiding of having Jesus abide in us it comes through hearing, hearing something from the beginning. Yeah, from the beginning of your hearing the gospel and you really heard it. It wasn't just words on a page. It wasn't just another sermon that went in the ear. It was the life of God in the person of Christ being received by faith and transforming the soul. So let what you heard from that very beginning moment when you were born again, when you repented of your sin, when you beheld for the first time the 
the beauty of Jesus on the cross. Let that abide in you. And if what abides in you, verse 24 says, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And I'm writing these things because I don't want you to be deceived, verse 26. And then notice the continued language of abiding as it relates now to the Holy Spirit. But the anointing that you have received, which we argued last week, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that every Christian has when they hear the gospel and repent and believe. But that anointing from the Holy Spirit, it abides in you. And you have no need to teach anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. Do you see the emphasis of hear the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit? And the gospel is sufficient. You don't need any new Coke, as we talked about last week. You don't need new teaching. You don't need a new recipe. We've got all that we need in the gospel for us to grow and mature and live a life of godliness. So let it not be something that you move on from. Let it sit. Let it remain. Let it take up residence. Don't move on. Abide in the message of Christ and the gospel, and do so saturating yourself with scripture. How, how do you abide in the gospel? Well, clearly it's not just a, I heard it one time. Remember when I was 10 years old and I was at this church meeting and somebody asked me, what's going to happen when you die? And I didn't ever think about that before. And I felt guilty of my sin and I got convicted and they told me Jesus died for my sins and I repented and believed. And then I stayed with the gospel. That's the normal story of the Christian life. I didn't move on from the gospel. I didn't say, well, now I'm a Christian. Now let's learn about new things. Let's learn, hear, read, study the message of Christ in the gospel. That's what he means. Remember the context here. There are those who have left the true classic Christian faith. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, some have left us. And their leaving showed that they were never really of us because they've gone on to a different Christ, a different gospel, and that gospel will not save. So abide in this one, the true gospel. Secondly, verse 29 teaches us to practice. Practice his righteousness, except it's not a command this time. It's just stating a fact. You are born of God by the power of the Holy Spirit from the preaching of the gospel, and that's something God, by his grace, does for you. And if you are born of God, then notice the way verse 29 describes it. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So to be clear here, the passage itself is not commanding you, practice righteousness. It's saying, those who are born of God practice righteousness. Because you have received the gospel, because you have the Spirit in you, you will, by default, by nature of who you are, because the Spirit's in you, you will practice righteousness. And that's an encouragement, not necessarily on first read a warning. That should be, well, praise God. My, my reliance upon my sanctification shouldn't be in my efforts alone. Sure, I probably need to go to church weekly. Sure, there's a lot that I can do to abide in the scriptures by how I schedule my time or what I prioritize. Sure, there's a kind of preparation that's needed for the wedding day, for the king that's coming. But at the same time, realize 
the kind of work that's happening here is flowing from the gospel in you and it's driving you to righteousness. A child of God just lives out who they are by their DNA. That's why verse 29 begins with, if you know that he's righteous and we're saying that we have his spirit in us, that's the claim. I confess that I'm a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in me. But then I don't obey him. I don't listen to him. I don't care about him. I don't worship him. John would say, I don't think you understand what that means. But most of you in this room, the vast majority of you, I am confident, understand that basic idea. We have heard and received the true message of the gospel. We have received it by faith. And by doing so, it compels us to live righteously. We are righteous because we have Christ in us. And of course, First John's telling us, are we there yet? Of course not. But every little righteous deed that you do is all a gift of God's grace of him flowing through you, which is why there are no boasters in the church. We can't boast about anything that we're accomplishing or doing. Anything that good comes from us is ultimately a gift from God. So remember, this kind of righteousness is very simply the right way to live in relationship with God and relationship with one another, so vertically and horizontally. It's sometimes a confusing word. Sometimes it's something we overthink. It's pretty simple. Are you doing what's right by you and God? And are you doing what's right between you and, and everyone else? True Christians, they practice righteousness. They, they practice it. Not perfectly, but they do it. So first, we abide in his teaching. Second, his children, they practice his righteousness. They know that he's coming. They know that they want to live holy. And they're letting the Holy Spirit lead them to holiness, lead them to confession of sin, get their sin out into light and confess it to God and be saved day by day, constantly, moment by moment. Third, abide, practice, verse one, behold, see the love of God. Oh friends, what, what an amazing encouragement and commandment. Many commentators think that right here in verse one of chapter three, it's like John puts a little parentheses. He like just can't contain himself anymore. He just talked about being a child of God in the previous verse. And he's like, guys, let's just stop and pause. See the marvelous, lavish love of God. The word see here, I've translated behold because it could easily be the like attention grabbing, stop what you're doing, arresting kind of gaze. Not just, hey, hey, look at that, and then move on. Stop, see, behold. What kind of love, what kind of love, the phrase what kind of here is actually the phrase for what, what country are you from? What, what sort of place? Where's your origin? Meaning, the love of the Father is being described with a phrase that is most commonly a a word of astonishment. I did every single comparison of where this word appears and every single time it's somebody that's jaw dropped. They're astonished. 
they're amazed. Every single time this phrase is used. So I think it would be fitting then for you to see that what John is encouraging you is to say, stop what you're doing. Look at the love of the Father in Christ Jesus that has been given as a gift. Various translations, because of how rich this language is, translated as lavished on us. He is pouring love onto you. I am so heartbroken day after day and week after week. Not in a guilt trip, but just as a, let's just acknowledge it. There are a lot of you right now, you're struggling to believe the love of the Father, and it breaks my heart. If there is one truth that could be more clear, it's this one. I don't know how God could make it more clear. God has demonstrated his love for you in time and space and human history by sending his son and giving his life for you. I've told you all that before bed, I catechize my kids with telling them, daddy loves you, mommy loves you, but most of all, Jesus loves you. And every once in a while, I'll ask, but how do you know? John, how do you know? Lucy, how do you know? And typically, I'll try and say, because God died for you. And here's one of my, like, just basic logic. This is right out of the Bible. Romans 5, Romans 8. Has anyone else died for you, John? Have they? I mean, Aunt Christy, she loves you a lot. Grandma, she really does love you, but she's never died for you, has she? Do you guys want me to put your kids to bed soon? Sometimes I get into it. I want my kids to know. Do you want your kids to know, parents? Tell them. The greatest love that has ever been demonstrated on the earth is not mom and dad. That's just a shadow, a reflection, a mirror of God's love for us. God's love. It's who he is, John's going to tell us. God is love. He flows love. Have you gazed at the lavish love of God the Father by sending his only son to die in your place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. Oh, what a marvelous exchange. Matt sent me a text earlier. His robes for mine. My dirty, filthy rags. But yet he washes me clean by the blood of Jesus. What love. John tells us that if we're going to get ready for the wedding day, for the coming of the king, we're going to get cleansed and purified if we're rooted in God's love, the love of the Father. Embassy Church, what a sweeter commandment. What a more encouraging thing for me to stand up here and say, on the basis of the word of God, I command you, gaze at the love of God. Isn't that awesome? Sign up for another event this week? Maybe. Announcements are good. But I am announcing, declaring, and pleading with you as your pastor, the most important commandment for you is to know the love of God in Christ Jesus and allow yourself to be soaked by the Spirit and be poured into you, as Romans 5, 8 says. God demonstrates his love and pours that love into us by the Holy Spirit when you gaze at the cross. So here's five quick tips, okay? just in case you're not getting it and you're like, just help me, tell me what to do. All right, Phil, I want to love it. 
I want to gaze at God's love. Number one, come to church every week. It's simple. It's easy. I will try my best to faithfully either have a preacher up here or a faithful elder alongside of me or me myself, and I will preach to you that God loves you by preaching to you the gospel. So come to church every week. Two, be thankful that as of right now, the elders and the members of embassy are happy to take the Lord's Supper every week so that we remember God's love for us in Christ Jesus. We're not doing this because of a church tradition. We're doing this because, A, it seems like that's what the Bible uh, describes of the early church. So Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says that every week they gather together and they broke bread in each other's homes. So every week, let's break the actual bread that helps us remember Jesus. Because the ritual, the sacramental kind of thing that we're doing should help pour into your hearts the love of God in Christ Jesus. Third, sing songs about God's love, not just about your love for God. I'm okay with that, by the way. I'm not trying to be a a Debbie Downer kind of thing, like all the songs in the modern Christian music industry are all about me and us. I get that. It's a legitimate complaint. But put on your Spotify playlist. Sing a cappella. Have hymns that you go to bed to with your kids. Holy God, in love became perfect man to take my blame. And on the cross, I think I just messed up the song. Whatever. Know the song and then sing it. Sing songs about God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Fourth, so... I basically told you to come to church every week, okay? So hear God's word preached, take the Lord's Supper, sing songs, but you can do most of these things, hearing God's word, reading it, studying it. I would especially encourage you, this is number four, if you don't have a Bible reading plan that you'd like to do right now, just soak yourself in the Psalms. Just, if I, I'm kind of dry right now, read the Psalms. I think that they'll be really, really helpful to demonstrate God's love, connect with your heart, and fifth and finally, I've got lots and lots of great short, medium length, and long books about God, his love. Friendship with God, recently by Mike McKinley. Excellent book, just came out this last year. Strongly recommend it. It's about God's love for us in the triune God. There's so many great resources out there. Gaze, church family. God's children, they behold and they bask in the love of the Father. That's our third instruction from this text. First was abide from verse 28. Second was practice his righteousness by virtue of your DNA. Not because you're trying to earn God's favor, but because you're his children. And children act like their parents. And parents, for better and for worse. Third, we behold his love. We bask in his grace. Finally, fourth, we hold his hope. That's literally what it says. In verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him. The language here is, I think, kind of strange, but the, the wording should be, and everyone who has this hope in Christ is being purified. They're being scrubbed clean. They're being made holy. How amazing is that? I think this is one of the best passages in all of the Bible. I love it. I've mentioned it in other sermons, but here we are on a Sunday where here's our our primary text, and man, I couldn't say enough about it. There's like a whole history of this passage of scripture, verses two and three, 
through the history of the church. It's called the beatific vision. It's the vision of seeing God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God. And I think it would be great if this classic Christian doctrine of the beatific vision, which is the seeing God for who he is, in the sense that we talked about earlier, seeing him in all that he is, not just a little look or glance, but a gaze, and then ultimately having this hope, this hope that we will become who God made us to be from the beginning of creation. That plan, even though it has been messed up by human sin, it will be brought to fruition, but how? Through hope and through gazing. The hope we have now purifies us. The hope of knowing that one day he'll come again. The hope of knowing that each day we're getting closer to that day. The hope of like the bride getting ready for the wedding. They have a countdown coming. Now, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know that he is coming again. We know that he did come and that he will return. So we, we hold this hope. We abide in this hope and we practice righteousness on the basis of hope. And I think it's amazing that the Bible regularly encourages obedience, not for the sake of your entrance into the community, but obedience on the basis of God's love for you in Christ Jesus and you being cleansed and purified by just hoping. I think it should be the mark of a healthy discipleship relationship, a good church, a healthy preaching ministry, and good books good counseling sessions. You know what they do? They help you hold on to hope. So think through that. What should a healthy church look like? What should a good one-on-one discipling relationship look like? What kind of good books should I be reading? What kind of pastors should I be listening to? What should I fill my Spotify playlist with? Things that help you hope because the hope of God in Christ will purify and cleanse. It'll scrub you. So go back to the image. You're a doctor, and you're about to go into the OR. You gotta scrub up. You gotta get clean. The Bible's way of doing that is holding on to hope. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it great to know that it's, it's actually something that if you're sitting in the pew and you're 10 years old, or you're sitting in the pew and you're 70 years old, or anything in between, you can hold on to this hope. You can see. God made you so that you would be able to. But it's a miracle when he lets you really see. I can't do that. And neither can the discipler. Any more than I can make you born into the world in the first place. How much control did you have over your parents, being your parents? How much sovereign designation that I decided I would be born in this way. In a similar and mysterious way, you saying yes is also God's yes to you. God loves his children and he wants you in his family. There is no amount of dirt that he cannot cleanse off through the power of his cleansing blood. Hope in it. Believe in it. Know that because he already did come, he's coming again. And let that hope purify you. Abide. Practice righteousness. Gaze at the glory of God the Father's love. And hold on to the hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to pray now in the name of your son, Jesus. 
And we do so because we know that he is already now King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we who have repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus, we are children of God. Yes, this is what we are. And hallelujah, we praise you for doing this mighty work of salvation into our hearts and lives. Oh God, the new birth, the being born again, the work of the Holy Spirit that has anointed us and caused us to love you and long for you and eagerly wait for your second coming. All of this we want to give you praise and glory for, and we don't want to take credit for it as if we somehow reasoned ourselves all by ourselves to faith. Oh God, we know that this is a gift of your grace. It's a gift that you've lavished on us. And so we just want to humbly thank you for it. And we want to pray that we will live in light of the reality of your first and second coming. That we would know that by saying yes to Jesus, the wedding day is coming and the consummation is around the corner. And it will be a glorious celebration. And we want to pray that that hope of your return would help us make sense of evil news stories in the world. It would help us make sense of our own sin and our heart, and it would help us to become more and more like Jesus. So Lord, our our deepest prayer, our, our greatest desire, is that we'd be able to long more and gaze more fully at your beauty as David prayed in Psalm 27. One thing we ask is that we would be able to be in your presence. So meet us now, even as we take the Lord's Supper, eating the bread and drinking the cup. In Jesus' name. Amen.